Welcome everybody to this, the third of our Monday night lectures in the Rare Book School Summer Lecture Series. I would remind you that there is a reception in Alderman 1 following the lecture to which you're all most cordially invited. Uh, there'll be a short Q&A uh, after Andrew's lecture and he will moderate his own questions. Some men are born great, some men labor for greatness, some men have greatness thrust upon them. This has absolutely nothing to do with our speaker this afternoon. <laughs> I can tell you, however, that when Andrew van der Vlees was a doctoral student at Oxford University, I had the privilege of being in the same faculty and he had a bit of a target on his chest because he was one of the two smartest students we had in a very large graduate program which had more than 500 graduate students. Even then, Andrew distinguished himself. He's now reader in global Anglophone literature and theory in the Department of English at Queen Mary University of London. He's the author of South African Textual Cultures, published in 2007 by Manchester, and then again by Witz uh, in 2011. So he has beautifully the symmetry of an English publication and then an African publication. He's also the author of numerous essays and articles on South African literature, book history, and visual and print cultures. He edited Print, Text, and Book Cultures in South Africa, 2012, and has republished a, re published a remarkable number of scholarly articles and contributed to several prestigious academic projects, including the Cambridge History of South African Literature, the Oxford History of the Novel, and a little project called the Oxford Companion to the Book, for which he acted as the associate editor for Sub-Saharan Africa, and I can say did so with distinction. His first book then, South African Textual Cultures, drew rave reviews. This one from the Sharp newsletter is one of my favorites. I'll just read you part of the beginning. This is a path-breaking book. Through meticulous and adventurous archival scholarship, van der Vlies illuminates the roles of publishers, readers, and editors, government committees, marketing, critics, and circulating libraries in creating the phenomenon of South African literature in English. This interdisciplinary research establishes van der Vlies as a first-rate literary critic, book historian, and cultural sociologist. So ends the opening paragraph. Not bad for your first book. <laughs> and his rave reviews go on. But the best thing to do is to see the power of the scholarship in the man himself. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my privilege to introduce Dr. Andrew van der Vlees.
Thank you very much, Michael, for a very generous introduction. Um, and thank you all for coming. So my brief was to uh, give a talk about the book in Africa. And I said, yes, of course, I'm delighted to be able to visit the Rare Book School um, and get a sense of the kind of exciting and invigorating conversations taking place here. And of course, I'm pleased to be able to share something of my knowledge about the subject with you. I know you've all had a long day, though. So I'm going to try and balance an information-rich presentation with something that might speak to a range of disciplines from which you're all drawn, or at least challenge you in some way. And I want to start by saying that I also feel compelled to qualify what I might be able to say about the topic. So I'm going to offer a few caveats by way of leading to an argument, though the caveats are also part of the point that I want to make today. So first caveat is that Africa is a big place, a continent larger than the contiguous USA, China, India, and most of continental Europe combined. And while it has a very much briefer history of engagement with technologies of print, with printed literature, than does Europe or indeed North America, it has a very long and complex history of orature, literary and cultural production not mediated by the technology of print, and also, of course, of scribal manuscript culture. This is particularly true in West Africa, where early trade routes across the Sahara connected thriving cultural hotspots and left a rich heritage of manuscripts in African languages transcribed in Arabic scripts in Mali, Senegal, Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, northern Nigeria, and so forth. It's also true in Ethiopia, where manuscripts in the Gez celebrate date from the very start of the Common Era, and where a nearly unbroken scribal culture persists right up through the arrival of Protestant missionaries in the early 19th century. There's great variety across the continent then, and there is, as my mention of Arabic script and of Protestant missionaries, of trade routes across the borders of modern states and of Ethiopia, which has such resonance in diasporic African cultural politics, as these mentions suggest, there's also a story to be told about how the, how the imbrication of imported religious and of indigenous or autochthonous language systems mediated by orature, manuscript, and print, all of which persist in ever-mutating forms. This points to tensions between local and global affiliations and connections, at the level of religious community, language community, state or national polity, diasporic identification, and so on. Africa is also home to a dizzying variety of languages. Nigeria, its most popular country, has more than 250, we are told. Neighbouring Cameroon, with a population one-tenth the size, has a similar number. So, back to my caveat. Printed matter, to return to the province of the book, the concern of scholars of the book as material artefact, exists in a range of languages, to most of which I have no access. I mention this to shrink further my capacity to stand before you as an all-knowing expert on Africa. And that leads me to general caveat two. There's an ethical impulse in my elaborating on what I can't tell you, which, which I want to uh, acknowledge at this moment of anxiety about the legitimacy of speaking for or on behalf of others. Here, the elephant in the room, or if it isn't, it should be, is that I am, by accident of birth, a white South African, which makes me very conscious 
of the pitfalls of approaching material from or about Africa without due care. Even as, or because, I regard part of Africa as my home, and I want to recognize too, of course, that some might consider that problematic. I'm cognizant too of the fact that Africa evokes something other than the geographical place we locate on a map or a globe for those who regard themselves as African by inheritance in diaspora as a result of enforced displacement and to deal with all of the legacies of structural violence that comes with that history in many places today. So I want to suggest that in approaching African material, we should all be careful to avoid the language, for example, of anthropology, and also avoid any approach that might be misread as acquisitive. We need people like you, like us, and here I'm gesturing to a notional community constituted by shared intellectual and pedagogic and disciplinary concerns, to pay attention to African books, we'll use the shorthand for now, It's vital that we do so for all sorts of reasons, and I'll try and elaborate some of those. But attention, collecting, cataloguing, describing, tracing the histories of, with care. Because books are and are not just books. Books carry ideas. Books mark histories of violence. What one does with books is always potentially political. Disciplines have histories that encode privilege and often occlude hierarchies of access, of value, and so on. I don't mean to preach or chide, but I think it's important in this season that we're in, um, after last week of all weeks, and who knows how many weeks to come. So, I've used the words violence and imported, but of course print, that great technology that mediates the adoption of a different temporality to the oral, the time of reading, that implies the idea or myth of stable transmission, the modelling of genre, effected change in Africa that cannot be described in categorical moral terms. The arrival of print and the book produced ambivalent results in zones of cultural contact, facilitating productive engagements with modernity while silencing ancient cultures, promoting new forms of knowledge while functioning as a vehicle for organizing and also organizing resistance to site-specific hierarchies of power. We might think here about that great novel of colonial contact, Chinua Chebe's Things Fall Apart, and remind ourselves that the depiction of the collapse of traditional authority in Ibo land in the mid-19th century, which is heralded by the arrival of Christian missionaries, and Achebe's own father was the first convert in his family, also allowed for the disruption of social hierarchies that had marginalized some in Ibo society. Okonkwo, the tragically flawed hero, is superseded by those weaker than him, his wives, his convert son. Achebe's novel is worth remembering too because it was the first in the influential Heinemann African writer series, and I've always wanted to use one of these. There, point out. African Rice Series, number one, as you can see there. Right. Um, Africa's quasi penguin paperbacks. And I, I'll circle back to the African Rice Series later in the case study um, that I promise I'm going to get to. The critical role played by missionaries in spreading print through sub Saharan Africa from the late 18th century then cannot be 
overestimated. Evangelization and the spread of civil government were two principal agents of print production, and in almost every case also proximate drivers of the development of literary print culture too. Literate local elites with access to print and distribution networks, either through mission society presses, including at educational establishments like the Lovedale Institution in my home province of the Eastern Cape in South Africa, established in the 1820s, or the Bremen Mission in Gold Coast, Ghana in the 1850s, or Mission or Colonial uh, colonial State-Sponsored Literature or Translation Bureau, for instance, in Zaria in northern Nigeria, or the East African Literature Bureau in Nairobi, Dar es Salaam, and Kampala, soon addressed audiences in indigenous and European languages, fueling the growth of local literary cultures in Isihasa, in my home province, and Isizulu, in Gikuyu, and Kiswahili, Hausa, and Yoruba, and so on. So these are very early um, South, South African um, a book from, from the Lovedale Institution and also some early South African um, newspapers that were uh, very, very important in developing African National um, Congress politics. Right? So the anti-colonial and then the anti-apartheid movement starts in many ways with um, mission-educated um, indigenous elites, so to speak. Uh, okay, educating Africans in order to convert them or training them for clerical work in the colonial administration soon produced a class of people who could use writing for other means, creative and political. In other words, the picture is complex and never one-sided, full of pluses and minuses. And there are fascinating examples from many places in Africa of the unpredictable ways in which the book was co-opted, reinterpreted and appropriated. So, Isabel Hoffmeyer, for example, a South African scholar who's done extraordinary work tracing the many instantiations of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress in multiple languages throughout Africa from the mid-19th century to the later 20th, thinking about the complicated work that it performs in different places, points elsewhere to a case that is emblematic for her uh, of what she calls the metaphorical book. She cites a 1931 account in the Missionary Herald of a Congolese Baptist convert who runs the pages of a Bible up a flagpole outside her house to declare her people, her family, the people of the book, just as white Congolese officials run the Belgian flag up outside government offices. The book here stages a claim to another supranational and potentially anti-colonial identification. And I'll remind you too that the word in Hauser for Roman script in which it has been reduced orthographically, is boko, B-O-K-O, B-O-K-O, according to some etymologies derived from the English book, but also close to the Hausa word trickery. And there is some dispute about the exact etymology. Boko res- resonates for us too in the name of those pseudo-fundamentalist murderers, Boko Haram, whose name, again according to some, indicates their despising of Western knowledge, like book knowledge is haram associated for them with non-Arabic script, with non-Islamic teaching, ultimately whatever the etymology with whatever the book may be in its European mediated form in Africa. Okay, those were just two of the caveats, but there's only one more, I promise. So I want to try and roll some of these anxieties and statements of circumspection and apparent refusal to speak as expert together, but also 
My pointing to various currents of trance and supranational identification made possible by and mediated through print. I want to try and roll some of those together. And to do this, I need to add a third category of demural or refusal, and that is a disciplinary one. Um, And a little different from my, my refusal of anthropology. So I consider myself less a book historian than a literary scholar, but one who does not believe that we can do literary scholarship without paying attention to the material conditions of the texts that form the corpus of our objects of study. I challenge myself in any recourse to description of the material artifact, the book, to think about what the payoffs of such description might be for literary or cultural historical analysis. Just as I challenge any purely text-based literary analysis to think always about the circuits of production, distribution, and behind that, the hierarchies of discourse validation that have produced the possibilities for production and reception for any text. Okay, so, I promise that's the end of the caveats and contextualizations, and let me just try and frame them, perhaps, as a challenge or a series of challenges for all of us, um, and then I'll, I'll get to an example. So what do we do with the material instantiation of Africa's engagement with the technology of print, would be one question. What kinds of histories can our attention to this archive make possible, and with what payoffs? Whose responsibility is it to collect or preserve this material, and with what implications for national and transnational histories of print culture? What questions should scholars or collectors attending to this fascinating archive employ or avoid, and why? And I'm conscious as I read those questions that I don't know that I really answer any of them. But, you know, those are kind of the, the, the validating and animating questions and concerns that I would suggest we need to be borne in mind in any project that engages with the book in Africa. And I've qualified those terms there. So the best way of building up to some answers, perhaps, is to think about, think through a case study. And this is not very original research, I'll tell you right now. It's, it's drawn from that first book of mine. But I think it's a great um, case study just to try and uh, nuance Africa and the book in all sorts of ways. All right. um, it's a case study that shows, I think, that um, books from sub-Saharan Africa have typically hitherto been implicated in processes that put ideology and aesthetics in tension. If studies in and of the culture of the book are also studies of the politics of literature as an institution and have something to contribute to studies of cultural politics and the politics of culture, what particular challenges does material like what I'm about to share with you uh, pose? What rewards does it offer? Okay, that's kind of a, that's that's a natural pause, so you can rearrange yourselves and I'll have some more time. And then we'll get on with it. Okay, I'm going to turn to a specific example, a writer from South Africa with whose work I spent some time during my um, doctoral studies. Um, A Cape Town newspaper in August of 1962 reported on the arrival of a first novel, but really a novella, A Walk in the Night in the Post. It had come from Nigeria, and the reporter noted that he could neither give it away, sell it, or leave it in a bus or train or even on a park bench without technically breaking the law because he would be disseminating the work of a banned person. The newspaper could print little about the book besides its publisher and place of publication, a description of its cover, and that it had 90 pages and 19 chapters. 
The author was this guy, Alex Laguma. How many of you have heard of Alex Laguma? Right. Point, point proven. Okay. So Alex Laguma, of whom none of you would have heard, perhaps. But a survey at the end of the 1980s revealed that of all African authors whose novels were taught in literature courses in Anglophone African universities, only Ngugi Wationgo, Chinua Achebe, and Aikwayama were more popular than Laguma. However, almost all South Africans... Um, and I think this proves not only South Africans, were prevented from reading this work, but of course, in this case, for different reasons, because Laguma was regarded as a threat to state security. He was born in 1925 in the fabled inner city area of Cape Town, known as District 6. Some of you may have heard of that, which was later raised by the apartheid government. He was a member of the Communist Party and a founding member of the South African Coloured Political Organisation. And I have to say at this point that coloured in the sense is not used in the same way that coloured was used in this country as a synonym for African-American, right? It's a, it's a, I'll say a bit more about that. He was a defendant in the notorious mass treason trial in the late 50s, which ended in acquittal. The point is that he was an anti-apartheid activist, harassed by the white minority regime, frequently arrested and detained without trial, and finally banned in 1961 which effectively gagged him and led to the end of his career as a journalist because he couldn't be quoted. So there's not much point in being a journalist if you can't be quoted. No. Placed under indefinite 24-hour arrest in 1962, which is when his book was received in the Cape Town newspaper office, and eventually allowed to go into exile in 1966 on what was euphemistically called um, an exit permit. He would never visit South Africa again. He lived in London, chairing the London branch of the African National Congress in the late 70s, and then in Cuba, where he and his wife Blanche served as the ANC's representatives in Latin America until his death in October 1985. In his fiction, Laguna produced a kind of critical realism that charted the grind of everyday life amongst the black and so-called coloured or mixed-race community in South Africa in great detail, but without tipping over into polemical protest. So it was a kind of critical realism that showed the conditions under which um, uh, the others of the apartheid regime lived and invited the reader to draw their own conclusions right, about what the causes were for these conditions. His was not the firebrand writing of Soweto activists of the 1980s, in other words. In fact... Jane Kutsir, as a young faculty member at SUNY Buffalo, trying to write his way into an academic career as an Africanist in this country before having to return to South Africa, before becoming a novelist, thought Laguma one of South Africa's finest writers. In 1987, a few days after delivering a speech that railed against the demands placed on writers of fiction by conditions of historical emergency, Literature is not just a supplement to history. The novel operates according to its own rules, Kutsia said. Kutsia gave a public reading from Laguna's work, which, although the author had died two years before, was still banned. And here's the rub. This writing was not available in South Africa, at least not widely or legally, until the mid-1990s. South Africa's elaborate censorship regime considered each text by Laguna read each text, wrote reports on each text, and decided it was dangerous. And there were different, differing opinions and complex reasons for why that was in each case. Very interesting history. I'm not going to tell you too much more about the census, though. 
The determinations were moot, however, because the author was a prescribed communist and thus couldn't be quoted. And that was ultimately what... Um, you know, so they went through this elaborate process of, of determining whether it was literary, whether it was going to offend some people. They wrote these reports, but actually he couldn't be, he couldn't be read because he was a communist. His work was published, however, and in places that evidence my claim about the history of books from Africa, about claim that the history of books from South Africa so often involves transnational and international networks that tell us a great deal about the entanglement of print cultures with global ideological manoeuvrings in all sorts of interesting ways. So Legumis publishers were not, as had hitherto been the case with South African literature, either local, which was very much the case for an emerging Afrikaans language uh, canon, or mainstream metropolitan, as was the case generally for its leading Anglophone writers, from Olive Schreiner to Alan Payton, some of you may have heard of, to Nadine Gordimer, for example, and Kutsia. Legumis publishers were very definitely marginal in a metropolitan sense. So Walk in the Night was first published by Mbari, a cultural club and press in Ibadan, Nigeria, run by an expatriate German called Uli Bayer, who in 1957 had founded the very influential magazine Black Orpheus, which was dedicated to um, popularizing African writing throughout the continent. It was Bayer who smuggled Laguma's manuscript out of South Africa while on a trip around the continent, funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. Mbari, indeed, was funded in part by the Merrill Foundation in New York and the Fairfield Foundation through the Paris-based Congress for Cultural Freedom, and Fairfield was covertly funded by the CIA as part of the U.S. policy of encouraging the development of an intellectual elite to act as a stabilizing force in newly independent African states, which the U.S. feared was susceptible to Soviet influence. So just uh, savor for a moment the irony of a member of the Communist Party, unable to be read in South Africa because he was a communist, being published by a German-run small press in Nigeria, which is in fact funded by the CIA, as a bulwark against communism. And it's absolutely fantastic. So Laguma's first published book was, by virtue of its publication, by Mbari, implicated in shall we say, this, I think this, is, this qualifies as British understatement. I've been in, the country, in Britain for a long time, so this, I, think I've, I've, I think I've cracked it. Implicated in a more complicated patronage structure than he might have imagined. <laughs> but Mbari's distribution network was not robust, and as Wallace Yinka pointed out in his review of this book in the Lagos Sunday Post at the time, the bigger bookshops and stores in Nigeria still fought shy of accepting books published in Nigeria. So there's a kind of colonial cringe, if you like. Right? When Heinemann Educational Books approached Mbari in July 1963 about republishing the novel, 600 of the 2,000 copies remained unsold. And so we move to the second material instantiation of A Walk in the Night, which was republished with selected short stories by Heinemann Educational Books and included in that firm's influential African writer series. And remember, I showed you the pictures of Achebe's, which was the first novel we republished in that series in um, 1960. But, uh, of course, marketed chiefly to um, 
an educational market in Africa. And, and it came out in the Heinemann edition in 1968, so six years later. And there's a long story about how difficult it was for them to get it, which I'm not going to bore you with. I'll come back to the AWS, which, was also, which also published um, novels four and five by Laguma, uh, which were called In the Fog of the Season's End, 1972, and Time of the Butcher Bird, 1979. But I'll come back to them, come back to AWS, because in the meantime, Laguma's second and third novels... Oh, so that's the sorry, that's the, the, the African Writer series cover. Laguma's second and third novels, and a threefold chord, it's not a great image, I'm sorry, and the Stone Country, to 64 and 67, were published in English by another really fascinating small press that gives you a, another extraordinary context um, in the Cold War, effectively, right? Um, and that was a, a small press, a small firm in East Berlin, run by a dissident German author, Stefan Hein, and his American wife, Gertrude Gelben. This isn't part of my text, but it's a great story. Um, Heim, so Heim was um, born in Germany, um, but was anti-Nazi, escaped, uh, came to this country, was trained by the American military, became a kind of counterintelligence official um, but became so uh, upset by McCarthyism in the early 1950s that he elected to go back to the German Democratic Republic, to East Germany, with his, Ger- with his American wife. Right? And there they set up um, a little press called Seven Seas, which was um, dedicated to publishing in English, uh, to bring English literature, progressive English literature, to German readers, but in English, and to keep alive, this is a quote from their, their um, promotional material, to keep alive the works of American and other English-speaking progressive authors neglected or censored in their own countries, favoring work demonstrating anti-fascist, anti-racist, and anti-war propaganda themes. Propaganda themes. Very interesting. And, and they use that phrase. But which also possessed considerable literary merit. And I think that that sketches very neatly the, the, the kind of tension that I'm Suggesting writers like Laguma get caught up in, right, in this moment of um, the cultural Cold War, because who publishes him uh, determines which aspect of, of you know, in, in that polarity gets foregrounded. Um, it's actually, they're actually really good books, right, but some of the presses that choose to publish him don't, don't choose to publish him for that reason. Um, but, but also, quite a few presses in Britain who Heinemann tried to get involved to bring out the hardback, because at this point the um, conventional wisdom is that for a paper, before you bring out a paperback, you've got to bring out a hardback, right? So they try and get Jonathan uh, Cape, um, Harville, um, oh, sorry, Sackman Warburg involved, and they don't really want to touch it because it reeks too much of propaganda for them, right? There are all sorts of really interesting, overdetermined categorizations. Um, the reason se- one of the reasons Seven Seas publishes in English is, is, is because they see themselves as um, anti-fascist, anti-racist, let's get this great right work out right, to English readers globally. But they really struggle because there's you know, re- uh, um, lots of uh, bookstores in the West don't really want to touch books published in East Germany. Um, but also because... Um, they can't really sell many of their books in the Soviet Union, for example, which would be a great market. 
because there's this complicated um, quota system where East Germany takes a certain number of Soviet books in exchange for a certain number of German books going to the Soviet Union, and of course all the German language publishers get first dibs on, on that in that quota. But where these books end up is places like India. So I've, I've spoken to uh, book historian colleagues in India, for example, who remember picking up 70s books at the Calcutta Book Fair. Um, so you know, f- these sort of texts find their way into all sorts of really interesting places. Ambari retained the rights to A Walk in the Night. Um, sorry, I'm going to myself. Right. So Laguma had sent a copy of A Walk in the Night to Seven Seas in mid-1962. He was frustrated with um, Ambari's small distribution network in Africa. Um, but uh, they felt that, that there wasn't a great deal that they could do with it, chiefly because Ambari retained the rights. Um, but Seven Seas published these next two volumes, right? Uh, and, and I guess what sort of bibliographic code, you know, what happens is that um, the writing gets situated in an expressly political context through this association with this press. Each volume's paratextual material clearly participates in that construction. So, Anna Threefold Chords Cover depicts a dilapidated shack, as you can see. A blurb on the first page emphasizes Leguma's authority to depict such suffering. A biographical note lists his arrests and detentions. A foreword by an exiled South African journalist and politician argues that only art which reflects social conditions and injustices can have any significance in conditions like South Africa. And the Stone Country appears with similar paratexts. So while publication by Mbari in Nigeria allied Laguma's work with an anti-colonial, post-independence, pan-Africanist agenda, and also involved it indirectly in a complex system of American patronage, while Africa was, of course, a proxy site for the Cold War, publication in East Berlin pitched Laguma into global Cold War politics, putting political commitment into tension with aesthetics. It also spread his books abroad in unexpected ways, and I've already jumped ahead and told you about the Calcutta Book Fair. All of these political codes and self-conscious or defensive aesthetic coding are evident in and on the physical object itself. And the same can be said for the third context in which we find Laguma um, and I'm going to end with this, and I've already mentioned it, the, the Heinemann African Writers series. So much has been written about th- this particular series, about how, although it developed out of the widespread treatment of Africa as a market for books, in particular educational books, it came to break the mould by treating Africa as the source of writing in English, too, and later in other languages. So Heinemann added um, Lucifone and Arabic literature in translation different colours for those, so riffing on sort of penguin and different colours for different genres. The story goes that Alan Hill, who had started Heinemann's educational publishing section in 1946 and would run it as Heinemann Educational Books after its separation from the parent firm in 1961, discovered that few copies of Achebe's Things Fall Apart, much fated in Britain, a publication by the Heinemann parent company in 1958, had actually reached Nigeria. So he launched the African Writer Series in 1960 expressly to publish writing from Africa um, rather than, as it hitherto been the case, to export writing to the continent, right? British writing. But in 
But it was a complicated undertaking, and for all its positive contribution to the creation of a space for literature from Africa, it also came to be regarded as acquisitive, exploitative, it was still a British firm, it was still selling marketing books as educational, it was still selling them to universities and so on, ghettoizing African writing in books recognisable for their membership in a series, um, with, a, you know, with an orange spine like this. Um, the series also didn't easily escape its association with um, its beginnings in an educational publishing context, as I've said. Surveying its first three decades, Odia or Femun offered a cautious critique of the series, noting that its influence on the course of African literature had been so strong that many African intellectuals had begun to regard it as, quote, a special cornering of the turf, a part of a neo-colonial infrastructure which had limited indigenous potential. Graham Huggins suggests that the series was both a valuable promoter of cross-cultural understanding, but also an ironic purveyor of exoticist modes of cultural representation. A well-intentioned undertaking, it nonetheless aided the continuing exoticization of Africa through misdirected anthropological images. And in some ways you can kind of see how Achebe's novel participates in that, right? A novel about tribal life, so to speak. Okay, so we are more or less back where we started, um, with a warning about the dangers of treating African material as ethnographic or anthropological evidence, exhibit, artifact. But of course, the positioning here is done by the very material instantiation of the text itself in various of those African writer series. Editions, cover art, paratexts, co-texts, series, context. Jonathan Eric observes that Legumes was more part of a world literature than that of any particular nation, even if in his writing he was struggling toward nationhood. Because his reputation is essentially that of an exiled writer, however, the publication and reception history of his work is necessarily that of a literature in exile, a literature existing in an uneasy relationship to any claims on it by a national literary history. Publishers accepted or rejected his work depending on their respective investments and judgments about whether it was South African or African, depending on judgments about what writing so constructed should do, represent African context to African readers, represent conditions of oppression, whether or not specifically South African, to a concerned international readership, or whether it should be amenable to universalist literary critical judgment, and more importantly, be saleable in the West. And of course, in many, in many respects, I don't want to be controversial, but in many respects that's kind of also the situation of um, of some African-American writing at mid-century, if you think about the kinds of reviews that Invisible Man got when it first came out this is not just a book about African-American conditions, this is about the human condition right? I mean of course it is, but there's a politics in that kind of construction isn't there Because its fate is arguably representative of much black South African writing, and because it has been argued not to be thus representative, Legumazov provides both an exemplary and an aberrant case study of the disputed nature of writing by a South African writer, which might or might not be South African, might or might not be literature. The fates of his works attest to the complicated lives of books in proto-postcolonial societies, in which the vagaries of meaning and the contingency of literariness itself 
are constantly contested, but in which the political almost invariably triumphs. Okay. The, the lull now is kind of the lull of when is this going to be over, so I can tell you it's very nearly over. A couple of paragraphs. Where, you may be wondering, do you possibly come in? Stories like Legumas are not often told, and yet paying attention to the material conditions of his work's publication and distribution can tell us so much about the work itself and about the work that African writing has been made to do internationally. These stories are only possible, their payoffs are only clear, if we are on the lookout for the multiple versions of texts like these, often in editions that are very hard to come by, that are often not in library collections. So any British library that has a copy of a Laguma text will almost certainly have an African Writer Series edition. right? Um, but think of the conversations one might have in the classroom with students able to hold the Mbari edition, to feel how cheaply it was produced, to think about the bibliographic codes, right? or to compare the African Writer Series edition of the later novels with the Seven Seas editions, which are kind of falling to pieces now. And, and even, you know, even in the fact that they're falling to pieces, one might read multiple use, right? multiple readings in all sorts of interesting places. Also, African books are not only published in Africa. I guess that's one of the big points I want to make. The idea of Africa has never been constructed in Africa, or at least not wholly there for the world. Nor do all African countries have the resources or infrastructure to archive the traces of all extant editions of African books. So there is, it seems to me, a great deal of scope for those of us interested in what books can tell us about aesthetic and ideological contests, about the imbrication of political, economic and literary value, and about cultural change, to encourage the collection of and the thoughtful pedagogic and critical engagement with books like these, little books from little presses um, that you may, you, you may not have come across. The kinds of nuanced stories we need to tell about Africa, I think, demand that. Thank you. So I'm very happy to self-moderate. <laughs> Take questions. Yes. Um, uh, can I ask you to tell me who you are? Oh, yes, I'm Kirat Kidd from Jesus College, Cambridge. Um, I wanted to ask you if we ever considered correlation study between what you have presented here and African-American uh, aspiration to publish their literature. Uh, you are probably aware that there have been dozens of African-American small presses because many of the works written by African-Americans throughout our American history have been rejected by uh, white presses. So there was an internal dynamic within the African-American community that you can argue was marginalized or even invisible in the mainstream publishing uh, arena, but very vibrant within the microcosm of African-American community itself. So now we find ourselves in year 2016 where this dichotomy is entering the mainstream. Whereas pre-Obama years, you had this micro discourse 
dependent on publications of Native African-American writers, extant mostly within African-American churches, communities, neighbors. But now it's, uh, it's, it's now a kind of, the literature itself may not, not be entering the mainstream, but the voice of the invisible is finding their way out through the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. And now it's kind of taking the, the mainstream by surprise. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was wondering if you thought there was a, a correlation in terms of the structure and functionality between the two. Uh, thank you for that. Um, look, I'm, I'm not an expert on African-American literature, so I, I'm, I, I can't draw um, specific correlations, but I think absolutely um, that there are very interesting parallels. Um, or I would guess that there are very interesting parallels. Um, I mean, I guess I'd say that, that ultimately it's very hard to... to trace exactly um, how those functions succeed, if you like, right? Um, because often it's through becoming commercially viable, right? Um, so a mainstream mainstreaming um, has, has all sorts of negative um, ideological consequences there, right? Um, I mean, I, I suppose I could say two things, uh, which don't really answer your question, but um, but sort of, you know, touch touch the arc of your question at a tangent. The the, the one would be that um, there are all sorts of really interesting uh, connections between um, African American cultural politics and Black South African politics um, from the. The, the 1920s onwards, I would say, particularly. I mean, it, you can keep pushing that back, right? Um, so, for example, Sol Plaiki, who was the first secretary of the African National Congress, very important black South African writer, author of the first novel in English by a black South African, um, published by the Lovedale Press, in fact, in 1930, but in a, in a much edited... Um, the manuscript was much edited in order to conform to what the missionary press was willing to publish. Um, he, he, he toured Canada and the US in the, the, the late 19-teens to raise money for the African national cause in South Africa. Um, but literary forms um, developed in the US were very influential in the kind of emergence of... Um, Cultural, a, a cultural modernist moment in black South African uh, communities in the 1950s. Both uh, jazz was, ext was extremely, uh, extremely important connections, um, but, but also um, the, the, the drum generation, generation of black South Africans in Safayatown in the 1950s were writing a kind of racy journalism that was modeled on hard-boiled reportage and hard-boiled fiction in, in, in this country. Um, and that was all suppressed uh, by the apartheid government, who destroyed uh, communities like Sophia Town, where there was this vibrant cultural um, activity, but also, and more effectively, in a way that South Africa is still uh, hobbled by, um, by what was called Bantu education, 
1953 onwards, uh, which was a government policy to educate black people only to be laborers, effectively, to be workers. Um, and that fed all sorts of other uh, really damaging but uh, kinds of political, political activism, like in the 1980s, uh, liberation before education was a slogan. Right? So um, I'm, I'm kind of getting sidetracked, but, but that, that was one of the tangents. But the other would be to say that um, what's happening in South Africa now um, is that the, the, the emerging black middle class uh, are driving the production of, um, of writing by black South Africans um, in very interesting ways and in ways that um, are c completely not interested in what white South Africans think about that, right? Um, and that's very interesting and, and causing all sorts of um, conversations that just miss each other completely. And I, w I wonder whether there are interesting parallels in this country uh, be between, between that and, and what's, what's happening here. So uh, apart from saying... Yes, I suspect you're right, that there are all sorts of connections. I haven't done that work myself. Um, but but, but I, I, I sense that there would be interesting theoretical work that could be done on, uh, on, on thinking, you know, thinking about the kind of structures or paradigms that would allow one to, to say something interesting about the ideologies of, of, of that kind of production. And if that didn't answer your question, we can talk at the reception, because I, I don't know that I've done it justice. I feel a bit uncomfortable about it. Moving on, but let's move on. Yeah. Were there approved black writers in the apartheid era, era? And were there black writers who were not revealed to be black? Um, that second question is very interesting, and I... I, uh, I I would I don't know the answer, but I would suspect no because um, South Africa is such a, a race was such a race paranoid society that um, that was the first thing anyone would would ask or wouldn't you know or would know right. Um, but in terms of were they approved writers, so to speak, um, absolutely, and uh, you know, literature literature by black South Africans as far as the government was concerned through the 1950s, 60s, 70s and 80s uh, were black writers who were prepared to write books in vernacular languages to be used in schools. Right. So um, school textbooks uh, quite simplified literature for, um, for use in, in primary schools and high schools. Um, there were, however, also South African, black South African writers who made various accommodations with the regime for various reasons. Um, you know, exhaustion with exile would be one. Um, writers who returned in the 80s uh, and went off to teach at universities in the homelands, which were um, effectively reservations that were given quasi-autonomous status and exchanged ambassadors with white South Africa and no one else recognised them, right? That they were effectively countries within the country with their own parliaments and premiers and so on, and universities. Um, but the, the, the kind of lively, 
culture of black South African writing that, that is very evident in the 40s and 50s was quite effectively suppressed by, um, by the mid-60s uh, when South Africa was a, an extremely wealthy country on the back of, of mineral, you know, mineral deposits, um, on the back of extremely um, successful you know, policing, and of um, a, a very complicated censorship structure, uh, which is a fascinating story. Um, and I, I recommend very highly, if you're interested in it, um, that book at the top. Uh, sorry, the italics have gone missing. Uh, Peter MacDonald's very brilliant study of the apartheid censorship regime called The Literature Police which is a, a wonderful case study of um, the censorship regime, but also a case study of publishing in South Africa under apartheid, uh, which does uh, really much better than anything else I can think of um, in, in showing what the payoffs are for, you know, for uh, cultural history of, of thinking about the mechanics of what happens to books, so to speak. Um, so some of these other images are, are just images of... Um, and this, this one on the left was on the very fantastic poster which you designed. I'm sorry I didn't talk about it. But these are images by a um, very interesting South African artist uh, who, who produced lino cuts that were used on books published by small oppositional presses. So a very lively, small oppositional press... Um, community in South Africa in the 70s and early 80s who you know, barely kept themselves going, dodged the, the security police, you know, books would come out and then get banned, but 100 copies had made it into the underground and were, you know, so, uh, bookstores that were known, you know, you would go into Vanguard bookstore in Joburg and everything was under the counter. But, um, so you know, the one on the right is, 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 an, is an Afrikaans novel. Um, and there's really a lot of work still to be done on, on collecting and describing and doing interesting book historical work with these small presses. Uh, so, so that's uh, what Pergens, the poet, who actually is the artist. Um, and this is, of course, Oswald um, uh, um, and Charlie. A great black South African poet, uh, forward by Nadine Gordimer. So you can. There's a lot to be said too about the kind of mediation of um, black South African writing by uh, progressive white writers who had access to various uh, markets and various uh, circles of, of validation and so on, and, and did their best to try and promote the publication of this kind of work. Does that answer your, kind of answer your question? Yeah. In fact, we have a copy of the poster here for Great. Andrew to say thank you for his very stimulating talk. Lovely. And we'll continue the conversation on Alderman 1 downstairs. Will there be a reception for you as well? Thank you very much. Thank you.